Good morning, everyone. So we are ready to start. Yeah. So I'm really excited to start a new book with you this morning. So if you didn't know, we started the book uh, Leaders Eat Last. So it's the second book that Simon Sinek wrote. So we are starting this book today. And there's really a correlation between those two um, books. So yes, we started with Start With Why. So when you understand why you are doing it, what you are doing with your company, of course, you want to take care of your people. And that's how uh, what we will cover in this book, Leader Eat Last. So yes, when Simon Sinek wrote this book, it was really to rally those who are ready to challenge the status quo and replace it with a reality that is vastly more conducive to our deep-seated human need to feel safe, to contribute to something bigger than ourselves and to provide for ourselves and our family. So a reality that works for our best interest as individuals, but as company, as community and as a species. So if we believe in a world in which we can feel inspired, safe and fulfilled every single day, and we believe that leaders are the ones who can deliver on that vision, then it's our collective responsibility to find, teach and support those who are committed to leading in a way that will more likely bring that vision to life. So why they call it the leader E-class? So it's really the principle that comes from the military corps where we see that the higher grade will always eat last. So I was a little bit curious this morning because I know that Jean-Philippe uh, was in the cadet um, when he was younger. So I asked him, is it something that really uh, is real when you are <laughs> in the cadet? So yes, he said, really, you can see it when uh, they were uh, outside of the, I don't know exactly how they call it, but uh, when they were uh, doing an exercise outside. So always they have the higher grade, eat less. So I asked him, why exactly? Why do you think it was something that uh, they taught to the higher grade? And he said, I was a higher grade. So he know how they, they were taught to be the last one to eat. So uh, he said that, yes, in the cadet program, he was teaching to the new staff cadet in charge. He was telling them that as a leader, you want to be sure that all your, um, your, uh, your team is happy and all your team is well fed before you are the one to eat so you make sure that they are at their best when you can now start for you so yes they said bring you something to eat <laughs> on the go if you need something else but always leave them so they you know that they are well fed and ready to have all the energy to start the day and to be ready for the all day so it's really something real that we can see that leader eat last when you see it in the military corps but for the entire entire world there's something to learn from that so there's three points in the book that uh, it's really a summary of what we will cover in the few weeks ahead 
I was looking at the, the, the book, there's 27 chapters. So yes, we will do it for a few weeks, this new book. So there's three points really important to understand to really make sure that you know where we are going. So number one is the lesson number one, that safety means progress. Number two, it's responsibility means actually caring about people. And number three, it's technology has turned us into performance addicts. So if we want to know a little bit more for each, so in the number one, the safety means progress. So a leader provides safety. So if you uh, think about the last time you made a lot of progress on a fun little side project of yours. So where, where there was nothing to gain but the joy of doing it. Were you worried about paying that month bills? Probably not. So the reason you could focus entirely on making progress on something you care about is because your basic needs were already secure in that particular moment. So our brain always default to safety mode. And the reason is simple. It had, we had to in the past or we wouldn't be here. So today, all of our safety problems revolve around money, but for our ancestors, they had a ton of safety issues. They had to run away from a saber-toothed tiger, hide from enemies, avoid disease, and hunt and gather their own food and find a place to stay. So progress only started occurring once they moved around in groups and delegated tasks. So when you take John to take care of collecting berries and Jason to hunt some wild bear and while Jenny find a nice cave, then Joshua can spend all his time crafting a new spear. So that's why a leader job is to provide safety to his follower so they can focus on making progress toward their shared vision. So the bigger the circle of safety around the group, the faster the progress. For example, Google draw a pretty awesome circle of safety around its employee. So free food, ask any question, meeting and 20% time of for your own experiment are pretty safe environment to be in. And once you're not worried about avoiding threats, you can now start improving. Lesson number two, that responsibility means truly caring about other people. So don't get detached. So let's say you manage the finance of your company. In that case, your responsibility might be to allocate the budget in a way that maximizes profit. But in reality, it's your job to make sure that the money goes to the people that will use it the best. Maybe you want to shut down a division? If so, you're not only shutting down a part of the company, you're robbing people of their safety by firing them from their job. This doesn't mean you should try to save everyone. But you have to be aware that there's consequences for your action as a leader directly impact the life of your people. That's why empathy is the most important trait of a leader. If you can really put yourself into other people's shoes, you will truly care about them and thus be worth for them to follow you. So it's easy to get detached when your company grows. And when that happens, the consequences of your action seems less real and often leader will then make decisions at other people's expense. So for example, for us, our email list sits at 50,000 people right now. It's easy to blast out a mass email, but it's a great reminder that yes, that behind every single email address, 
there is a human being and it's my responsibility to send some to send them the best and most power, uh, helpful email I possibly can. And lesson number three, the technology has turned us into performance addict looking for the next dopamine hit. So if we go back to our ancestor, they were really glad when the, that runner's high kicked uh, on in the last few yards before the cave so he could jump to safety and not be eaten by a bear. But today, that's not a big issue, which is why your dopamine cells have decided to reward you for the great performance instead. So companies' reward system often work according to the mantra, more is always better. But sadly, each new sales record you set will make you feel less happy. So instead of focusing on lasting value, we change the color of our profile picture on Facebook or tweet something with a human right hashtag and feel really good for completing a task. This is so much easier than actually going out, for example, by volunteering and doing something about it. So our brain will settle for the like on Facebook as a substitute. So this is addicting thought and will only make you feel empty inside. So don't hope for the next funny cat video, but do something that's hard instead and you will feel a real sense of accomplishment afterwards. So you will see that it's not a how-to book about leadership techniques, but one that will offer a fundamentally different perspective and approach to leadership. So this morning, we will start the first chapter with Melanie. And I really love the story of this first chapter. So I will let Melanie uh, tell you that story and uh, her, her interpretation of that first chapter. Okay, so the first section of the book is called The Force. So those of you that uh, are Star Wars fans, it's The Force, okay? And part one is called Our Need to Feel Safe. Chapter one, Protection from Above. So I'm going to read you a story now, and uh, hopefully it will help to set the tone for the book. A thick layer of clouds blocked out any light. There were no stars and there was no moon, just black. The team slowly made its way through the valley, the rocky terrain making it impossible to go any faster than a snail's pace. Worse, they knew they were being watched. Every one of them was on edge. A year hadn't yet passed since the attacks of September 11th. The Taliban government had only recently fallen after taking a pounding from US forces for their refusal to turn over the Al-Qaeda leader, Osama bin Laden. There were a lot of special operations forces in the area performing missions that to this day are still classified. This was one of those teams and this was one of those missions. All we know is that the team of 22 men was operating deep inside enemy territory and had recently captured what the government calls a high value target. They were now working their way through a deep valley in a mountainous part of Afghanistan, escorting their high value target to a safe house. Flying over thick clouds that night was Captain Mike Drowley, 
or Johnny Bravo as he is known by his call sign or nickname. Except for the whir of his engines, it was perfectly peaceful up there. Thousands of stars speckled the sky and the moon lit up the top of the clouds so brightly it looked like a fresh layer of snow had fallen. It was beautiful. Johnny Bravo and his wingman were circling above in their A-10 aircraft, waiting should they, need to be, should they be needed below. Affectionately known as the Warthog, the A-10 is not technically a fighter jet. It's an attack aircraft, a relatively slow-flying, single-seat, armoured plane designed to provide close air support for troops on the ground. Unlike other fighter jets, it's not fast or sexy, hence the nickname, but gets the job done. Ideally, both the A-10 pilots in the air and the troops on the ground would prefer to see each other with eyes. Seeing the plane above knowing someone is looking out for them gives the troops below a greater sense of confidence. And seeing the troops below gives the pilots a greater sense of assurance that they will be able to help if needed. But given the thick cloud cover and the mountainous terrain that night in Afghanistan, the only way the either knew the other was there was through the occasional radio contact they kept. Without a line of sight, Johnny Bravo couldn't see what the troops saw, but he could sense how the troops felt from what he heard over the radio, and this was enough to spur him to act. Following his gut, Johnny Bravo decided he needed to execute a weather letdown to drop down below the clouds so he could take a look at what was happening on the ground. It was a daring move. With the thick, low-hanging clouds scattered storms in the area and the fact that he would have to fly into a valley with his field of vision reduced by the night vision goggles, Performing the weather letdown under these conditions was extremely treacherous, even for the most experienced pilots. He was not told to perform the risky maneuver. If anything, he probably would have been told to hang tight and wait until he got the call. But he was not like most pilots. Even though he was thousands of feet in the safe cocoon of his cockpit, he could sense the anxiety of the men below. Regardless of the dangers, he knew that performing the weather letdown was the right thing to do. And for him, that meant there was no other choice. Then just as he was preparing to head down through the clouds into the valley, his instincts were confirmed. Three words came across the radio. Three words that can send shivers down a pilot's neck. Troops in contact. Troops in contact means someone on the ground is in trouble. It is the call that ground forces use to let the others know they're under attack. Though he had heard these words many times before during training, it was on this night, August 16, 2002, that he heard the words troops in contact for the first time in a combat situation. He had developed a way to help him to relate to the men on the ground to feel what they feel. During every training exercise while flying above the battlefield, he would always replay in his mind the scene from the movie Saving Private Ryan when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy. 
he would picture the ramp of a Higgins boat dropping down, the men running onto the beach into a wall of German gunfire, the bullets whizzing past them, the pings of stray shots hitting the steel hulls of the boats, the cries of men hit. Johnny Bravo had trained himself to imagine that this was the scene playing out below every time he heard troops in contact. With those images vividly embossed in his mind, he reacted to the call for assistance. He told his wingman to hang tight above the clouds, announce his intention to the flight controllers and the troops below, and pointed his aircraft down into the darkness. As he passed through the clouds, the turbulence thrashed him and his aircraft about. A hard push to the left, a sudden jolt to the right. Unlike the commercial jets in which we fly, the A-10 is not designed for pa passenger comfort, and his plane bounced and shook hard as he passed through the layer of cloud. Flying into the unknown with no idea of what to expect, he focused his attention on his instruments. His eyes moved from one dial to the next, followed by a quick glance out of the window. Altitude, speed, heading, window. Altitude, speed, heading, window. Please let this work. Please let this work, he said to himself under his breath. When he finally broke through the clouds, he was less than a thousand feet off the ground in a valley. The sight that greeted him was nothing like he had ever seen before, not in training or in the movies. There was enemy fire coming from both sides of the valley, massive amounts of it. There was so much that the trace of fire, the streaks of light that follow the bullets, lit up the whole area. Bullets and rockets all aimed at the middle all aimed squarely at the special operations forces pinned down below. In 2002, the avionics in the aircraft was not as sophisticated as they are now. The instruments Johnny Bravo had couldn't prevent him from hitting the mountain walls. Worse, he was flying with old Soviet maps left over from the invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s but there was no way he was going to let down these troops. There are fates worse than death, he will tell you. One fate worse than death is accidentally killing your own men. Another fate worse than death is going home alive with 22 others that don't. And so on that dark night in August, Johnny Bravo started counting. He knew his speed and he knew his distance from the mountains. He did some quick calculations in his head and counted out loud the seconds he had before he would hit the valley walls. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. He locked his guns into a position from which he could see a lot of enemy fire originating and held down the trigger of his Gatling gun. Four one thousand, five one thousand, six one thousand. At the point he ran out of the room, at the point he ran out of room, he pulled back the stick and pulled a sharp turn. His plane roared as he pulled back into the cloud above, his only option to avoid smacking into the mountain.
His body pressed hard into his seat from the pressure of the G-forces as he set to go around again. But there was no sound on the radio. The silence was deafening. Did the radio silence mean his shots were useless? Did it mean the guy on the radio was down? Or worse, did it mean the whole team was down? Then the call came. Good hits, good hits, keep it coming. And keep it coming he did. He took another pass, counting again to avoid hitting the mountains. And another sharp turn, and another, and another, and another. He was making good hits, and he had plenty of fuel. The problem now, he was out of ammo. He pointed his plane up to the clouds to fly to meet his wingman, who was still circling above. He quickly briefed his partner on the situation and told him to do one thing. Follow me. The two A-10s flying three feet apart from each other, wing to wing, disappeared together into the clouds. When they popped out less than a thousand feet above the ground, they began their runs together. Johnny Bravo did the counting and his wingman followed his lead and laid down the fire. On cue, the two planes pulled high G-turns together and went around again and again and again. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, four one thousand. That night, 22 men went home alive. There were no American casualties. So it's quite a dramatic story. And, uh, you know, your immediate reaction to it is, is, my God, that guy was so brave. But the reality of it is, what, what is it that made Johnny Bravo go back again and again? I mean, he had no extras in his pay packet. There was no bonus because he hit so many people. Um, it, he will tell you if he spoke to you that it was all part of the job. The question is, would everyone do that? Most of us work for recognition from above. Most of us work for the moment that somebody says, well done, you did a good job, you get a bonus, etc., etc." But often that only exists when you have a good boss. I mean, how many of us in our lives have worked for good bosses and for bad bosses. I know that in my very first job as a graduate at uh, uh, Boots Pharmaceuticals, I had a boss who found it impossible to praise anybody. You went to work and what he did was he gradually destroyed your self-esteem because he was never there for you. And I breathed a huge sigh of relief when he left and a new boss came in and was, was able to do that. So those sort of situations are dependent on individuals. How would it be if the situation was generic in a company? So for, for Johnny Bravo, the need, he had a need and has a need, as do all military troops, for something integral and solid something that passes through all levels of organization. It has nothing to do with the training, although, of course, you have to be well-trained. It has nothing to do with the education, how good you were before you joined. Neither did it have anything to do with technology. 
The thing that makes people do the things that they do is empathy. Empathy is the understanding of other people's situation. It's the knowing that they would have done the same thing for you had you been in that situation. Empathy is powerful. Maybe Johnny Bravo and people like him are, are special. But what I would say to you is there's a possibility that everybody could work in this fashion. Everybody could have empathy where they put the collective good of a company ahead of the individual glory. You would find bonds would be formed forever. Success and fulfillment that no money can buy would be felt by everyone. In a place such as that, leaders practice the well-being of their people. They always have at the forefront, just like as Jean-Philippe explained to Mary Pierre this morning, is that if my troops are happy, if my troops are well fed, if my troops understand the situation we are in, then and only then am I in a position to look after myself because leaders eat last. Now, I believe that um, if an organization is to behave like that, it can outmaneuver and out-innovate competitors. I believe that we are very lucky. We are in an organization, in an MLM, that operates with those philosophies. We have a collective feeling. We are all entrepreneurs. We are all self-employed. We all own our business, but we work together. Our leaders make sure that we are nourished, nourished with training, nourished with recognition. The, the collective of a powerful organization is what helps us. So when our leaders are planning things to do, they're not looking at the fact that they don't get paid for preparing a meeting, that they don't get paid for, for bringing out recognition. What they are doing is working for the collective good. They have empathy because they remember that when they were in the position that the new people, that the, the majority of the business owners of our MLM are in, that they needed that praise. They needed the training. They needed the guidance. And as that, I believe as an MLM, we have the collective force and the empathy of an organization that's successful. So I don't know about you, Mary-Pierre, but I mean, look at the timing, perfect. I, I think that uh, we can leave it there because uh, I'm excited by what I'm reading. And I truly believe that we have a winner of a book to follow here. And it will reinforce for all of us the best way that we can operate to, to best help the people who work with us. So I'm going to say goodbye this morning and thank you for being here for our very first podcast on this book. Goodbye, everyone.